The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by Medtronic. Medtronic is dedicated to the pursuit of life-transforming health tech. From AI to robotics and beyond, we're reinventing what's possible, and we're just getting started. Visit Medtronic.com to learn more. Hey, everyone, and welcome to our throwback episode. In our throwback episodes, we are reintroducing you to some of our most popular episodes. This is great for new listeners who want to learn more about the work we've done in the past, and it's a great refresher if you've been a listener for a long time. Enjoy. I have been in the insurance industry now for more than 30 years, and about 15 years ago, came across the information that we'll be talking about today when I saw a video of Robert Cialdini presenting at Stanford, and it really appealed to an analytical part of me because it's all based in science, and state would have it because of that video and some comments that were made about it, I ended up getting in touch with Robert Cialdini's organization, and he was a guest speaker at State Auto Insurance in the summer of 2004, and I went through his two-day workshop and stayed on top of my boss here at work and said, I need to get certified in this, and that happened in 2008, and here I am today blogging, writing, training, coaching around the principles of influence. Fantastic. And so what are those key influence or the seven keys to influence, according to Cialdini? Well, most people are familiar with what they call the six principles of influence. And there's a seventh principle that he recently introduced when he wrote a book called Presuasion that came out in the fall. So let me first talk about the, the six principles that many people are familiar with, and then we'll touch on the seventh. So these principles of influence that Robert Cialdini talks about have been around as long as human beings have been around. And what Robert Cialdini did was to put the framework around them that people could really grasp it and go, oh, I get it. So he defined six principles of influence that guide a tremendous amount of human behavior. And I'll give a quick overview of what those six are. The first that we talk about is principle of reciprocity. And reciprocity tells us that we feel obligated to give back to people when they first give to us. And we all know that. I mean, we may have had the the example that somebody sent a Christmas card and we didn't send them one, but we quickly hurry and get a Christmas card in the mail to them. That feeling that we should send them a card to, that's reciprocity. They've done something for us. We feel like we should do something for them. The next principle that we talk about is called the principle of liking. And liking tells us that people prefer to say yes to those they know and like. Well, we all kind of know that, right? It's, it's easier to say yes to doing something social with somebody that you know and like as opposed to somebody that you don't know or maybe don't like. So if we can build relationships with people, it becomes easier for them to potentially say yes to us when we do need their help. Third principle that we talk about is the principle of authority. And this principle tells us that when we're looking to make a decision, we defer to people that we see as having superior wisdom or knowledge people who are experts. So for example, Kwame, with your background in, in the law, if you were at a social gathering and people were talking about the law and you didn't say anything like, well, I'm, a, I'm an attorney and, and then started to tell them, without knowing you're an attorney, you're just another guy with an opinion. But once you tell them that you're an attorney, you are moved into that status of expert and they listen to you more. So that's a natural human function, too, is that we will listen to people that we see as being extremely smart or having expertise. The fourth of the six principles is the principle of consensus. And this tells us that when we're unsure of what to do, we look to other people to see how we should behave in certain situations. 
an example that your listeners can probably relate to is peer pressure. When kids are younger, we're afraid of peer pressure, that social pressure that they feel from kids that are their age. And as a parent, you know, you don't want your kid to get involved in things that could be harmful for them. And so we're always worried about peer pressure. But the reality is, is even when we grow up and become adults, we're still subjected to peer pressure. It may not be putting pressure on things like they are with kids, you know, drinking, drugs, sex, and things of that like. But we all experience peer pressure in the environments that we work in. We tend to conform to how things are done, how people dress, etc. That's that social pressure or what we call consensus. The fourth of the six principles is called consistency. And this principle tells us that people feel very strong motivation to be consistent in what they say and what they do. In fact, we feel internal psychological pressure, but we feel external social pressure. For example, when we give our word to somebody, we don't want to feel bad by not doing what we said we'd do. That's that internal pressure. But externally, if we've made that commitment in front of other people, we also don't want them to think less of us if we don't follow through. And so both of those compel people to really do their best to live up to their word. And then the sixth principle that he popularized is called the principle of scarcity. And scarcity alerts us to the reality that when we perceive that something is rare or maybe going away, we tend to want it more. And so we see this all the time. All you have to do is watch an infomercial. And when you see the clock ticking away or they say that there's only two items left, there's just something in us that naturally wants that thing more, and it motivates us to take action. So those six principles of influence that Robert Cialdini popularized in his book, Influence, Science, and Practice. As I mentioned earlier, he has come up with a seventh principle, or I guess has uncovered a seventh principle that he calls unity. And he highlights this in the book that he came out with last fall called Persuasion. And in that book, he tells the principle of unity, which really goes to the heart of the fact that the more that we see ourselves as part of some group, the more likely we are to be able to say yes to them. The tightest group that all of us have is family. There are things we will do for family that we would never do for other people and then extended family. But it can apply to things like, the best example I can think of is my father was a Marine, served in Vietnam. And I've often told people that when he meets another Marine, and particularly one who has been in combat, I actually think that he feels closer to them than he does to me, his own flesh and blood. There's a unity that's there, a shared experience, a common experience that just transcends almost everything else. And so that's the principle that Robert Cialdini highlights quite extensively in the book Persuasion. This is fascinating. And for the audience, I want you to take a moment and appreciate (laughs) Brian's encyclopedic knowledge of these keys to influence, because these books by Cialdini, just they have been groundbreaking when it comes to the study of persuasion. So I strongly recommend getting the book and reading the book Influence, that's the first one, and then Persuasion. I read that this year and that was mind-boggling. So maybe another time we could have you come on and talk more about that. But let's get into these these keys because this is really, really interesting. So I want you to tell the audience about how you've been able to use this practically in your career and how they can do it as well. Okay. Well, first let's define what persuasion is. 
the best definition that I've come across for persuasion was from Aristotle, the famous Greek philosopher who lived 2,300 years ago. And he said that persuasion was the art of getting somebody to do something that they would not ordinarily do if you didn't ask. And if you really pause and think about that, it's a fantastic definition. Get somebody to do something that they would not do if you didn't ask. You see, we have things that we need to get people on board and doing, and yet they have their own priorities in their own lives. They don't, people don't wake up every day and say, you know, what can I do for Brian Ahern or what can I do for, for Kwame? They've got their own priorities, and yet you, Kwame, need them to do things or I need them to do things. And how I communicate with them will make all the difference between yes and no. And that's where understanding the psychology of persuasion comes in, because if I know how people think and behave and I'm willing to change how I interact with them to use this scientific research, the likelihood of yes becomes significantly better. But I would like your audience to remember this, that persuasion is not just about changing minds and hearts. It has to lead to a change of behavior. It's not good enough for somebody to say, oh, that's a great idea, Kwame, and then not go do it. For example, when our daughter lived at home, if her mom or I said, hey, Abigail, clean your room, we didn't want her to look at us and go, great idea. Let me think about it. No, get in there and clean the room. That's what we want you to do. So persuasion is about changing people's behavior. That is deep. That <laughs> I, had a, I had a good laugh because now I'm imagining my little baby giving me that kind of response. That is, that's funny. Yeah, and, and that really makes sense because it doesn't matter if people agree if they don't comply. And mm -hmm. that's really what this is all about. Well, if you're running a business and you have an employee who's not getting to work on time and you say, we need you to get here on time, everybody else is here on time, and they look at you and say, it's a good idea. I don't care what you think of the idea. I want you here <laughs> on time. That's the behavior change that we need to. But we can tap into this psychology to make that become easier for them to say yes and actually do it. So what is your opinion on possibly creating scenarios where? The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by Medtronic. Medtronic is dedicated to the pursuit of life-transforming healthcare technology. From artificial intelligence to robotics and beyond, health tech is reinventing what's possible. Every year, Medtronic improves the lives of 74 million people, and we're just getting started. Visit Medtronic.com to learn more. You're able to get somebody to comply with the action, even if they don't agree with you. Well, I, you know, somebody may not want to get to work at 8 o'clock, but still how we, how we interact with them may make that difference. And so for me, if I were having that conversation with somebody, in addition to maybe pointing out that their coworkers are all getting here on time, that's consensus. Here's what everybody else is doing and you're not. I want that person to feel a little like odd man out. But the other thing is I would tap into that principle of consistency. I wouldn't just tell them, we need you here at eight o'clock. I would ask them, will you commit to me right now that you'll be here at eight o'clock every day? And then I'm just going to pause and I'm going to look at them. But once they say yes, the likelihood of them doing that goes up dramatically. And so here's an example. You know, you and I had talked about well, what are examples, professional and personal. A personal example, when, when our daughter still lived at home, sometimes my wife would say in the morning, hey, Abigail, empty the dishwasher. Now, as a teenager who has her own priorities, quite often my wife and I would go to work, we would come back and the dishwasher wasn't empty. And we had different hours. I'd go to bed early and 
my daughter was more of a night owl, so she might come home after I go to bed. I could wake up the next morning and dishwasher might not be emptied. I could maybe come back from work the next day and the dishwasher might not be empty. And my, my wife would be really upset and say, Abigail, I told you, empty the dishwasher. And then, of course, you'd have the, I know, Mom, I heard you. I'm busy. I was going to do it later. All the excuses the kids can come up with. And I would simply do this, Kwame. I'd look her in the eye and I'd say, Abigail, would you please empty the dishwasher before you leave for school? Now, the subtlety of that is I didn't tell her what to do. I asked her. And she's either going to look at me and say yes and more likely do it. Or if she says, I can't, Dad, I'm in a hurry, I'll say, hey, wait a minute. Will you do it then as soon as you get home from school before you leave for work? Yeah, yeah, I'll do it. I'll do it as soon as I get home from school. And she almost always would. But the difference there was not telling and asking. And so when we asked and she finally said yes, whether it was to in the morning or as soon as she got home from school, like all other human beings, she doesn't want to feel bad about herself. Oh, I told Dad I would do it, and then I didn't. And so she was more likely to do it. And so I always tell people when it comes to, to something like this, stop telling people what to do and start asking. And then you've got to be ready for them to, if they do say no, what's your fallback position? For me, it was, okay, do it as soon as you get home from school. In the end, really, I didn't care because all I cared about was as soon as I got home from work at like 5 or 5.30, I wanted to know that the dishwasher was empty. Right. You know what's so fascinating about these principles of influence, or well, one of the many things that's so fascinating about it, is the fact that none of them focus on being right. Why do you think that is? Well, I, I think people have different perceptions of right. But I think as far as, you know, whether it's, you know, emptying a dishwasher, there's really no right or wrong there. There's simply things that, you know, in my home, we had chores and rules. They could be different in yours and other people. But I know this, that when my daughter woke up in the morning, she has her own priorities. And that's not, you know, hey, mom, dad, what should I do first, my chores or homework? No, she had her own life that she was living. And yet we needed things from her and how we would interact with her would make a huge difference as to whether or not she would say yes and do what we wanted, or just fall back on excuses like, well, I didn't hear you. Right. And I think it's really interesting, too, because when you a lot of times when people try to persuade others, when they're not too well schooled in these types of principles, they figure I'm right. This is the right way to do it. So, for instance, let's look at another way a parent could do this and say, well, if you want to contribute to this family, you need to if you want to be part of this family, you need to contribute. And that's what that's the right thing to do. So you will do the dishes. And that's mm -hmm. the right answer. But like you said, there was not an ask and there wasn't any real attempt to persuade. It was just right. trying to dictate and force their beliefs on somebody. And typically when you try yeah. to force your beliefs on somebody, there is going to be resistance. Right. And that's, you know, Dale Carnegie was not a social psychologist, but he was a very astute observer of, of human behavior. And, you know, back when he wrote his book in the mid-1930s, he said, let the other person feel the idea is theirs. When somebody feels like the idea is theirs or when they're given choice, they feel more ownership. So telling somebody doesn't allow them to feel like it was their choice and it doesn't really give them ownership. That's why it's so important, particularly in, in the business world, that we don't dictate to people that we, as much as possible, try to ask questions and allow them to come up with the answers themselves. And sometimes, Kwame, they surprise us and come up with a better idea than the one that we thought they should implement. 
but it's about asking questions because when they come up with that idea and they believe it's the right idea, and if we're on board with it too, now they own it more because they felt like they had a choice and they felt like they came up with the idea. And it's just human nature for people to think more highly of themselves than of somebody else. That's why most people think they're better looking than average, smarter than average, kinder than average, and their ideas are probably better than average. So let them, let them come up with the idea and own it, and they're more likely to do it. Yes, I love it. I love it. Okay, and can you share the story about how you were able to use these techniques to increase email engagement at your business? Yeah, one of the things that, that people do in email all the time is tell people what to do. And what I found was a very, very valuable technique was to simply ask people and also personalize the email. So I'll share this quick story. Many, many years ago, I had done some training on Dale Carnegie. had run probably more than 300 people through this training. And I sent out a mass email, blind carbon copy to everybody, and basically said, if you've had any opportunity to use the Dale Carnegie information, let me know. Maybe we'll write an article for you in our online magazine. And after a week, Kwame, I had nobody respond to that email. So I stepped back and I thought about how I could do it differently. And I realized, one, if I personalize it, when people feel like an email went just to them, it engages some reciprocity. They feel like you've taken a little bit of time. The least they could do is take some time to answer. So I personalized the email. And then I made sure I asked a question because people feel very, they feel a compulsion to usually answer questions. So I reworded the email. I made sure it would say in there, Kwame. And then instead of telling, it said, have you had an opportunity to use the Dale Carnegie material? Question mark. If you have, let me know. Maybe we can include it in an upcoming edition of our online magazine. Within the week, 125 replies. So first time doing it the, the expedient, the normal way that most people do, just send out this mass email, got no replies. Rethink it have 125 replies within the week. And a lot of the people said they haven't had a chance to use it, but they still felt like they needed to answer the question. So I would always tell your listeners, when you're going to be communicating, whether it's with a large group of people or, or individually, the more that you can personalize your communication, the more people recognize either consciously or subconsciously that you've done something and they should do something in return but make sure you ask a question. I have found this really useful when I've helped people too. So Kwame, if you sent me an email and asked me for some detailed information on insurance and I had to do some research, I wouldn't just send that email back. I would put one sentence at the end apart from everything else. Kwame, does this answer your question? Or Kwame, is this what you were looking for? something to get you to verify back that I've done what I needed to do. But the reason that's important is because you'll probably come back with something like, oh my gosh, that was more than I expected. Thank you so much. And as you're typing that out and thinking those good thoughts about me, my personal brand has just gone up with you. And so I always coach people, you know, ask that one question at the end of an email is, does this answer your question? Is this what you were looking for? Something like that to get that verification because it helps avoid miscommunication, but it will significantly enhance your personal brand. I love that. And I especially love it because, as you know, I was able to use it successfully because within minutes of you sending that example to me, I, I had to rethink all of my emails that I've sent to the listeners 
because I realized mm -hmm. that I have done, I, I've, I've tried not at all <laughs> to try and make my emails more persuasive. And so for the listeners, you'll remember I put out an episode asking for people to help me rename the podcast. And so mm -hmm. from that, I got a, a number of responses, which was good. And then after you sent me that email, I decided to try and pack an email with as many keys to persuasion as possible. I tried, to, I think I might've gotten five of the seven principles of persuasion in there. And within two hours, within two hours, it doubled the amount of responses I got in two hours. And I think it was three days later after that episode had aired. And it's just incredible. And so these are things that we could use anytime we're communicating with people, whether it's in person or using electronic communication, it doesn't matter. It still works. It always works. Yep. It, and and most people would would say would have no idea about why they responded to this email versus some of the other email because the vast majority of this operates at the subconscious level. You know, most scientists believe that anywhere from 85 to 95 percent of the actions that we take on a daily basis are driven by our subconscious. And these principles that we talk about tap into that subconscious where people aren't forward thinking about it, and yet it starts changing their behavior. Exactly. And that's where persuasion is its most powerful, where it, it goes under the surface. If you have a spy that that prances into the room and says, by the way, I'm a spy, and I'm working for another government, it's going to greatly diminish the efficacy of that spy's efforts. But it, that's how it is with persuasion. We can't announce yeah. to people that we're trying to persuade. It has to go underneath the surface. Yeah, and, and then you get to the, the whole question about ethics. And we spend, during workshops that I teach, we spend a lot of time talking about ethics because when you, when you are in an, an advantageous position, you know, you could be the car salesman. You know more about cars and prices than the buying consumer. You're, you're in a, at an advantage. Well, when you understand persuasion, you are at an advantage to other people. And so you need to handle that carefully. The last thing that we want to have happen is somebody says, you manipulated me. Because if they feel that they were manipulated, upset customers go and tell everybody. They'd go say, Brian Aher manipulated me or Kwame manipulated me. And so we never, ever want to even get close to that line of manipulation. And a way that we can avoid that is by always making sure that, one, we are doing what is right by that other person, that what we're asking of them is not just for our benefit, but is also beneficial for them, that we're always being honest in our communication with them, and that we're using these principles in a way that's natural to the situation. And by that, I mean, you know, a salesperson will probably know that customers will buy things more if they think that they're rare. So for a customer to say to Kwame, to you and your wife, if you're looking at it, buying a new washer or dryer, if they said, well, you know, you're interested in this one, I think we might have sold the last one, but I could go in the back and take a look. Just by saying that they think they might have sold the last one increases your desire to have that thing. And so they may be lying to you. So they're, they're being untruthful, but also they're disingenuously using a principle. If you understand these principles well enough, you will find... Um, above board application for them. And so always do right by the other person, tell the truth and use the principles in a way that's truly natural to the situation. And you shouldn't have to worry about coming across as someone who manipulates. 
That is a really great point because that's a question that I get a lot of times when I'm out doing trainings. What is the ethical line between manipulation and persuasion? And I think you outlined it really in a really great way because a clear ethical line would be truthfulness. <laughs> if you're lying, you're cheating. You know, I think of this almost like a game of sorts where it's like not so much a game in the sense that I want to win and win big in that way, but mm -hmm. it doesn't count to me if I had to cheat. That's not persuasion in that case. That's just, exactly. <laughs> that's just simply deception. Those two are not the same thing. And, exactly. and also I think it has to come down to intent in a lot of these situations, because if we are doing something and we intend to take advantage of someone and intend to get them to agree to something that we know is not in their best interest simply because they are misinformed, I think that, in my opinion, is, is crossing the ethical line as well. Right. There's a quote that I use a lot of times when I do public presentations, Kwame, and it goes like this. It's, it's from a book called The Art of Woo, which means winning others over. And it says, an earnest and sincere lover buys flowers and candy for the object of his affections. So does the cad who only seeks to take advantage of another's heart. But when the cad succeeds, we don't blame the flowers and the candy. We question his character. Hmm. Flowers and candy are neither good nor bad. These principles of influence are neither good nor bad. They simply describe how people typically think and behave. How we use that information says something about our character. And, and again, we never want to be viewed as somebody who is manipulating people to do things for our self-interest. Right. Oh, this is great. <laughs> this is great because you're the first person who's come onto the show to actually speak on the idea of ethics in negotiation and persuasion. So I'm, I'm glad you were able to touch on this. Well, let me let me tell you this too, Kwame. Uh, if, if it weren't for this very subject, you and I would not be having this conversation today because when I saw that video from Robert Cialdini where he presented at Stanford, he was very clear about non-manipulative ways to get people to do things. But the next quarter when Stanford came out with their marketing of his video, it said in bold letters, call it influence, persuasion, or even manipulation, right in the headline. And I don't know why, but I felt compelled to address it. So I emailed Stanford and I basically said, I don't know anybody who wants to be manipulated, nor do I know anybody who wants to be known as a good manipulator. That one word cannot be helping your sales but it really could be hurting. I never heard from Stanford, but sometime later my phone rang and it was Robert Cialdini's office. And they said, we want to call to thank you because of the, because of the email you sent Stanford's change in the marketing of our video. And that's where the conversation began that led to him coming to state auto insurance to speak and led me to go take his workshop and ultimately to get certified in training. If I had not felt strongly about this and sent that email, there's a very good chance that the, the course of my career would be significantly different than what it is today. And you know what's really interesting about that story? I can see a couple of the principles of influence in that. I see reciprocity in that they felt as though they owed you a little bit because mm -hmm. you helped them out. I see liking, obviously, because <laughs> you're you were kind of championing the idea of persuasion yep. without manipulation. And almost, well, we, we he hadn't come out with persuasion at the time, so unity wasn't to the forefront of his mind. But I see a little bit of unity there because you clearly appreciated the fact that we need to persuade. As persuaders, our goal is to 
get people to do what we want, but we need to do it while maintaining our ethics and our humanity. And so that put you in a class of persuaders that he was into. So he saw unity. So that's three of the principles of persuasion right there. Yep. Great observation. Perfect. Oh, man, this is fun. Okay, (laughs) I I could talk about this forever, but I know we've been we've been chatting for a while. So I want to end with this. If you could challenge our audience in one way to become more confident communicators, what would it be? Well, I think the easiest takeaway would be to focus on the telling and asking. I mean, there are six principles. That's not a lot. Certainly any reader or any listener could go back and and focus on one of those six principles and say, I'm going to really try to engage reciprocity this week, or I'm really going to try to engage liking. But I think what might be easiest would be to try to engage that principle of consistency, that, again, people feel this internal psychological pressure as well as this external social pressure to be consistent in what they say and what they do. And the best way to tap into that is to not tell people what to do, but to start asking. So a very easy way to do that is, you know, any of you folks listening here, before you hit the send button, next time you are sending an email, just pause for a moment and ask yourself, is there anywhere in this email where I'm telling somebody what to do, but I could be asking? And if there is, change it into a question. And you'll be surprised at the response rate that you get, but also the follow through when people say yes to you, their likelihood of actually doing what they said they would do. Congratulations, you've just joined an elite club. By listening to a full episode, you're now officially on the Negotiate Anything team. So welcome aboard. What most team members do is they subscribe to the podcast because that allows them to automatically get the latest episodes of the show. The best things in life lie on the other side of difficult conversations. Keep learning, keep practicing, and keep getting better. Your relationships will improve, your career will soar, and you'll have the confidence you need to get the most out of these crucial conversations. Again, thank you for joining the team. We're excited to have you, and I will see you in the next episode. I'll catch you later.